0: Hi, this is John Amble. We're here at the American Bar at the Savoy in central London uh, for another installment of our podcast series for War on the Rocks. I'm here today with Kathleen McGuinness and Emile Simpson. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a book that Emile has written and uh, and then about some of the topics related to it, Afghanistan and counterinsurgency and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, Kathleen is a, a Ph.D. candidate at King's researching Uh, The Politics of Coalition Defection, as she puts it. Uh, Why coalitions that have formed uh, subsequently fall apart. Uh, She's also an adjunct fellow at CSIS uh, and a former NATO ISAF Pentagon strategist. Uh, Emil Simpson, uh, as I mentioned, is here as well. He previously served as an officer in the Gurkha Regiment uh, of the British Army. And he wrote a book called War from the Ground Up. So that's the first question I'm going to ask. I'll ask you, Emil, if you could just kind of briefly, tell us a little bit about the book, the genesis of it, uh, where the idea came
1: from it, uh, how it all came together, and, and, and really what your what your main thesis is. Uh, sure. The background to the book was uh, that I had the opportunity in the Army, um, at, uh, on a defense fellowship at Oxford, to uh, write down some of the experiences I'd had from the various tours of Afghanistan I'd done. Um, in terms of the perspective, I thought that it would be interesting to... Um, challenge the two standard genres in which um, military conflict is written about by which I mean, one, the academic perspective where you look down on the battlefield and then the first person narrative where you look across the battlefield and what I thought would be interesting to do was to place yourself on the battlefield but look upwards at the concepts that animated what was going on hence the title War from the Ground Up
0: Interesting. So, I've read, uh, I've read, and Kathleen, I'm going to ask you a couple questions that I think are, are kind of relevant to uh, to this thesis. Uh, in a second, I've read quite a bit of reviews. It's been reviewed very well. Uh, uh, it seems to be, have been well received uh, from a variety of, of, of reviewers of, of different types, both in academia and, uh, and uh, I guess, other types of observers. Uh, one of the reviews I read was uh, by. Uh, Tom Ricks at Foreign Policy, and one of the things he said was was that he was surprised when reading it. He had to remind himself that uh, it was written, he said, by a lieutenant, uh, but it was written by a junior officer, uh, which he seemed to be surprised about because it kind of really addresses strategic level issues. Uh, I guess my question is, should that surprise anybody given the you know the notion of the sort of strategic corporal in in this sorts of sort of warfare? Uh, do you think that do you think that Afghanistan is perhaps a war that is best understood or where the political uh, uh, component of it is perhaps best understood by people that are on the ground rather than at sort of a strategic level?
1: Yes, well, that question requires one to break down what one means by the political aspect of the conflict, and that um, speaks to the, the theme of the book, really, which is to draw a distinction between two modes in which force can be applied within armed conflict on the one hand what I call uh, well I borrow a term from David Cullen actually called armed politics and on the other hand as um, force applied within the analytical paradigm of war so in war in the traditional paradigm one um, applies force to defeat an enemy as a precondition to a political solution so the military sets conditions for a political solution And what I'm saying is that um, the polarity that is required to defeat an enemy, i.e. to create two sides, is absent in Afghanistan. We don't have a uh, clear enemy. We have a fragmented and kaleidoscopic political environment in which the um, political texture of the conflict doesn't lend itself to defeating an enemy. In 2006, the British went into Helmand and effectively, treated everyone who shot at us as the enemy and attributed to that enemy a, uh, to my mind, a misguided and false corporate identity, i.e. the Taliban. Three years later we evolved that because we realized that you can't defeat that Taliban and we now talk about target audiences and we seek to um, project a narrative um, to convince those target audiences to subscribe to um, effectively the rule of the Afghan government Now what does that mean for politics? It means that the political um, dimension of conflict goes right down to the tactical level because in that second mode of that is applying um, force in conjunction with non-violent means to convince target audiences you are, I call that armed politics, and you are um, planning actions with the primary Uh, intent of persuading someone of something, as opposed to defeating an enemy. Um, So the military is not necessarily seeking a military effect, but a political effect. And so the political considerations extend right down to the tactical level. Unlike in uh, war, in which, yes, war is still a continuation of politics by other means, but say, if you're a platoon commander in Normandy in 1944, you are not thinking about the policy aspect immediately. You are think you are seeking to defeat an enemy, and th- and those two modes are distinct. Mm. Kathleen, I think you've got a you got a yeah, point that you I, want to interject. Here. I
2: do, and and because you know as you're speaking, Emil, I, you know what I'm reminded of. You know, so so my background as a policy monk and a, as a um, NATO ISAF strategist. You know, I, you know, was, my job was about organizing and maintaining a, and um, building the coalition in Afghanistan and one of the problems that emerged um, in circa 2005 2006 as nato ISF, it takes on all of afghanistan it quickly becomes clear that the way nato organizes and manages its operations may may ex- you know make that dynamic even more true um, the each nation in southern Afghanistan, for example, had one bit of territory. They had their province, right? And so each na- national capital wasn't always focused on building together a national Afghan vision. They were focused on what was happening on the ground in Helmand. And the United States was the only military force that, w- that was sizable enough to start seeing how the entire picture would come together. So we had, um, you know, there were, there were complaints at the time, you know, are we building Helmandshire? you know, and, uh, you know, and you know it, it was this um, have we gone about organizing this mission in a way that actually you know A. makes the, the, the connection between the, the strategic and political down to the tactical even more um, even stronger and B. like have we have we basically essentially balkanized the mission through the way we've organized this coalition
0: interesting uh, you both made reference to uh Different shifts, but ways in which, uh, really, operationally, the way that we've approached the war in Afghanistan has changed at different times. And Amelia, you pointed to particularly two thousand six uh, as as say one of those points when things started to change. Um, uh, yes, uh, the service here at the American Bar is very good. They just wanted to double check to make sure our drinks are uh, uh, sufficiently fresh. I suppose. <laughs> uh, so as I was saying, uh, Emil, your background is is really kind of at a tactical level, hence the name of your book, "War from the Ground Up." Kathleen, yours is uh, strategic. You looked at much of Afghanistan from Kabul, which is a very different perspective.
2: Well, I actually worked on it from Brussels. Actually. Okay, and from from, from Brussels. You know,
0: so, so mm-hmm. the question then, uh, my question is, has has have those shifts led us to a situation where? You know, in advance of the of the withdrawal of troops in 2014, we can expect success. I mean, have they have they set the conditions for for Afghanistan to be the stable, you know, relatively secure state at least to a threshold that's acceptable uh, by by international standards?
1: Well, um, my thesis is that Afghanistan may be a war in a descriptive sense, but does not lend itself to the. Uh, Language of war in an analytical sense. So I resist a uh, binary sort of seesaw like victory or defeat concept. Um, in armed political activity, I think a more uh, useful analogy is domestic politics. So one has a, a series of policy lines, that is, if one is a politician, uh, say in office, and uh, success is more accurately defined vis a vis those policy lines. So in a term in office, one does not say that government has won or lost in a binary fashion, you say, okay, well on the economy, not bad on health and badly on defence or whatever. And even that is subjective because different constituencies will see that differently depending on where they stand. That's a more nuanced way of looking at Afghanistan. We've done all right on some aspects like security and less well on other aspects, especially the more idealistic aspects of the campaign. Um, that's That's the theoretical premise of my answer. And in terms of hard facts, what I think will happen, I think the best analogy is the Russian analogy. And I think the most interesting um, conversation I've had is the difference between 1989 and 1991. And I think that's, uh, if there's one takeaway from that analogy, it's that in 1989, the uh, Afghan army defeated the Mujahideen, the only time they actually massed together in a conventional posture, which is what an insurgency ultimately has to do to take over the state and at the Battle of Jalalabad they were defeated convincingly. The reason why ultimately we perceive from the Cold War victors point of view the Russians to have lost is that in 1991 the USSR itself collapsed um, cutting funding to the Najibullah regime leading to collapse. Now what's interesting is that yes um, there's plainly going to be a lot of instability but the if the funding to the Afghan government continues and to the Afghan security forces, I don't see the Taliban, or what, by which I mean the fragmented insurgency, taking over the state conventionally. Um, And so I think it's going to be more analogous to 1989 than it is
0: to 1991. And Kathleen, what's your perspective from from looking at it, I guess, like I said, from a more strategic viewpoint?
2: Well, you know, I guess... I mean, I, I take your points. I mean, I guess the, the the big... There's 50 different nations, or excuse me, 49 different nations involved in Afghanistan right now. And while we have these broader, you know, strategic political goals, it strikes me that almost every nation involved has a different idea on w- what actually needs to be done to accomplish those. And so, you know, th- y- you start getting all these sorts of scattershots. Effort. So, uh, you know, from... Um, a basic organizational and um, you know strategic viewpoint. Like I just don't how do I, it's it's hard to see how all these things come together in a coherent fashion. And coalition coherence is really hard to to build and manufacture and sustain. And I just don't feel like we've gotten there in Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, if I could respond to that, Kathleen, I think that's a great point. Um, what I find interesting is the language that that coalition operations produce, and to more specific, I mean defining narratives in the negative, because if you have um, to reconcile a broad range of political differences, mm. you end up going down to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And if you actually read the NATO plan, specifically plan 10302 Revised yep. 2, yep. in 2005 it's all very generic. Yes. So you say, well we're going to southern Afghanistan for governance and to, I quote almost verbatim I think, to spread the positive ISAF effect or words to that end. And there is no um, real clear mission than that. Now that lends itself to broad interpretation. On the one hand, you could interpret that very narrowly as a security mission. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you could import, interpret it much more widely. And what you've, what we've seen, is a uh, patchwork of interpretations. Absolutely. And um, because it hasn't been uh, that m- negative narrative, which is, I think Susan uh, Woodward, for example, has talked about this a lot in her work. Um, that, that lends itself to, for example, on a broader global scale, when we talk about, well, we're here to stop a, a, a state failing, a failing state. Well, what does that mean? Exactly. Do you mean to put in a democracy there or a dictator? Exactly. So those, those are very different. And what coalition operations do is often to prevent a more honest discussion about what we're actually there to do. And that's 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 what's perhaps one of the lessons to take forward.
2: Absolutely. I mean, at the, at the strategic level, you know, Diplomacy is about creating ambiguity so that you can have more aligned, you know, positions and, and start building consensus that way. But that, you know, when you're trying to, you know, use that sort of, um, you know, practice and apply it to a military operation and a coalition operation, you you know, you can't have the squishy, fuzzy language. You can't, you know, you, there needs to be precision that I just don't I, don't, I don't think we got there. I remember my first trip to Afghanistan was in 2007, and, um, It was, you know, sort of drinking from a fire hose. You know, I was there as a Pentagon person just, you know, trying to get a sense of the the on-the-ground dynamics to the extent possible. Um, And I had a meeting with one of the generals on ISAF, and I asked him, you know, hey, what can I do to help Um, from Washington? And he said to me, Kathleen, I I don't know. I don't know. Um, I've always been taught that there's nine principles of warfare, and ISAF seems to violate all nine of them. You know, what do we do? How do how do we bring it together? We don't, you know, we don't have clear objectives. We've got caveats. We've got, you know, each nation has their own perspective on how to accomplish the mission, and in fact, what that mission is. So, how do we bring coherence? I don't know. And if this is the future of warfare, and I think there's a lot of reasons to think it is, you know, we've got we've really got a lot of homework to do to
0: avoid these mistakes. I want to jump in and and, uh, pick up on something that a phrase that you just used there: the future of warfare. Um, counterinsurgency uh, coin has, has really become in vogue amongst uh, a certain community of kind of defense scholars. Uh, naturally, as it's been uh, the dominant strain of warfare really for for Western powers, Western countries, Western militaries uh, over the past decade or so. Uh, although I would say it was a few years into that decade that before we really realized that we were into a counterinsurgency, and a few more years before we developed some sort of doctrine but uh, behind the star power of, of you know the soldier scholars and uh, it, it really has like I said become in vogue the question I would ask uh, I'd be interested to hear both of your viewpoints on is 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 this an anomaly is is, is Afghanistan an anomaly is is coin dead uh, Ryan Evans the our editor in chief of one of the rocks wrote a piece for foreign policy a while back talking about the death of coin. Uh, is, is, is that understand kind of an anomaly? Do, do militaries transition away from that? Or, or is, this, is this truly the future of warfare?:
1: There's a lot of ways one could answer that. Uh, to start with coin doctrine, I would stress that coin is an operational approach. It's not a strategy. Coin um, is a generic template that um, should be interpreted pragmatically. I think that doctrine is a springboard of ideas. And if you look at some of the most successful campaigns, in the book, for example, I talk about the British campaign in Borneo in the 1960s, that fused coin doctrine with conventional war and nuclear deterrence in one package. It wasn't, say, a counterinsurgency campaign, it wasn't a war, it was the Borneo campaign. And doctrine needs to be interpreted pragmatically, one, and to dispense with all the knowledge we've gained um, over the last 10 years is absurd. That's, that's, a, that's a critical repository of experience that needs to be used as a pragmatic source to inspire future operations. So takeaway one, pragmatic interpretation of doctrine. In terms of how we uh, deal with um, circumstances in which there is a fragmented, kaleidoscopic political texture, I think coin doctrine is again required. That doesn't mean heavy footprint coin. Necessarily, What it means is understanding the uh, local political dynamics and treating the environment in terms of target audiences, rather than shoehorning um, the actual political dynamics into a, a straitjacket to fit a model of war. Take Syria, for example. The rebels are highly fragmented, and um, to shoehorn that into a simplistic one side versus the other clearly doesn't make sense. Now, the interesting tension this raises is that I think to be uh, operationally effective in those kind of circumstances, which to my mind are going to become uh, very much the norm in, say, the informational revolution-type context where in any conflict a whole load of interest can bolt onto a conflict and geographical boundaries make matter less. To be successful in those contexts on the ground, you have to use the type of targeting concepts based on target audiences I.e. disaggregate enemies, divide and conquer if you like, rather than aggregating everyone together into one threat. The interesting thing is that that kind of um, operational approach is really based on a fusion of military and political activity in one. And it's a bit like a dangerous experiment I think because that is operationally effective but ultimately it it does blur the boundary between war and peace and that's where strategy comes in. So to use these operational methods to, to succeed in those kind of fragmented political environments you use methods that fuse war, that fuse pol- political and military activity, but the strategy needs to box in um, that use of um, force, chronologically, um, geographically, conceptually, legally, in order to maintain the clear distinction between war and peace.
2: I completely agree. I completely agree. I think that um, you know, precision in strategy is is absolutely critical. Um, but you know, in terms of the future of warfare, uh, you know, it was, I think it's Bob Gates who said, we've got a perfect track record in predicting the next conflict. We've never once gotten it right, (laughs) you know? Um, you know, so I think it's absolutely foolish to, to, to argue that we're never going to do counterinsurgency again. I mean, we have to be prepared to, you know, fight and win the nation's wars, whatever form those wars may take and in whatever manner an adversary wants to, you know, um, confront us with. so I think it's silly that we've got this this idea that, you know, we've got this sort of weird binary approach to planning and thinking about warfare and what capabilities we need in the future. I kind of want to make sure that our military can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, that said, I think one of the, the broader points that I, I think is absolutely part of the future, I mean, as I read the strategy documents, as I read um, the, the budgetary scenarios, as, as I think this stuff through... Um, it's that we're going to be operating through coalitions, better for better or worse. Um, particularly in Europe, the uh, military budgets are declining significantly, um, so the need for um, interoperability and, and to, to work alongside other nations' forces, that, that imperative is increasing. The security requirements are increasing as well. I mean, there's crazy instability, as we know, in the MENA region. That is Europe's soft underbelly. I mean, so so requirements are going up. Capabilities are going down. So coalitions, I mean, by necessity, are going to be the vehicle through which we operate. Um, but strategic level, uh, you know, precision, you know, articulating clear goals, boxing things in. This is really important stuff to figure out how to do.
0: Uh, you mentioned that you said you wanted to see our military forces, and when you say that, I presume you mean us at the table—American, mm-hmm. uh, British, and and, and our mm-hmm. NATO allies. Um, you want to see them be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, I was yesterday uh, on Twitter called uh, "War on the Rocks" in-house pessimists, and I'm gonna I'm gonna validate okay. that reputation right now by saying <laughs> I don't know that it's possible. Okay. Um, when I when I went through my military intelligence officer base, of course, in the Army. We spent weeks on intelligence preparation on the battlefield, this doctrinal sort of concept. And we did it exclusively with conventional warfare where... um, you know, you understand, you, you learn how to assess whether or not you have the correct ratio, the, the correct ratio of at least three to one uh, that you need in order to succeed uh, in the attack, mm-hmm. uh, and you have at least one-third of the attacking forces in defense to be able to succeed in defense, I mean, these sorts of things. Yep. This was in 2005, 2006. We were well into, you know, what well, by that point, we should have known we're counterinsurgencies, but they just weren't there. A few years later, there were doctrinal shifts, and the and the entire manner of instruction was, was changed to reflect counterinsurgency imperatives, but there's only so much time in a day, and I don't know that military forces are really, if we can have s- individual units that are capable or prepared to engage in both, and so my question would be, what's the solution, do we have, do we have units, military units, that are, that are, that are predominantly oriented toward uh, counter operations in the same way that we have special operations forces that have particular missions? Uh, or do we try to constantly just strive for this balance where they're prepared for conventional warfare if need be, but also uh, to to successfully undertake counterinsurgency operations?
2: So my first gig in the Pentagon was actually doing, um, you know, tackling specifically this question um, because I was in the Office of um, Stability Operations Capabilities, and we were... Implementing uh, this Directive three thousand point oh five, and it was about making sure that stability operations were on par with major combat operations, and how we're going to plan for it and get, you know through the doc, you know dot mil PF stuff. And and my my conclusion from that experience, because I did you know get a lot of those um, a lot of that pushback at the time. But there's, there's a lot of things that you can do intellectually to, to, to ensure that officers and you know, NCOs have the intellectual agility and flexibility to be able to adapt. You can do things with scenarios. You can do, you know, your airfield seizure and ensure that there's, you know, not just airfield seizure, but there's a, there's a coin element to those exercises as well. There's stuff you can do that, that will give people the, um, the basis in which, or better basis in which to adapt that said you know, and that, that's a sort of programming nitnoid thing it is actually I think even more important at the strategic level um, to ensure that you know we as policymakers and and, and um, strategists articulate very clear goals and and you know things that can be actioned by military forces to achieve effects
0: Emil, in, in in your book uh, uh, I think you write about uh, how this is sort of a, a, a relatively new phenomenon. And I don't mean you know, new, new, but when you compare it to, as we were talking about uh, before, uh, a, a platoon leader storming the beaches of Normandy did not have uh, strategic political objectives and political imperatives really in mind and wasn't, wasn't being told you need to be aware of the, of the consequences of, of, of this action. They were told destroy the enemy uh, and, and seize this ground. Is this is that the this notion that, that uh, down to the lowest tactical levels uh, there needs to be this greater cognizance is that here to stay given uh, is that a function of it being coin or is that perhaps also a function of the new sort of media environment that the that, that, that war takes place in is that is it going to be possible will there be a war uh, in the future or could there be a war in the future where uh, where a lieutenant or a squad leader or a fire team leader, does not have to take account of, of, of those imperatives?
1: Yeah, well again, it's good to situate that question in the conceptual framework. So in a uh, more conventional sense, the political the requirement to think politically at the tactical level is absent because the opponent is the state. And so to have a an effect, a military effect against the state, it has to be a fairly big effect, fairly decisive. So a strategy is associated with a decisive um, blow, typically, to the enemy's armed forces. And that creates some kind of political effect in the minds of the government and the people that equates to what we call defeat, which is a military quality. Now, what I'm saying is that in a circumstance in which your audiences are not one, but not one state, on the contrary, but a, a fragmented, po- uh, a fragmented and kaleidoscopic texture, a fragmented and kaleidoscopic set of audiences, then political effect is measured much more locally and strategic effect uh, can be understand, understood as a cumulative concept. Uh, Conrad Crane, for example, has described Iraq as a mosaic conflict. And I think that can be applied to Afghanistan. So the political effect itself is the accumulated um, effect of several uh, constituencies um, in terms of their support adding up into something that matters. And that, again, is analogous to a, an election, if you like, in a domestic sense. So most people respond to an um, election in terms of their own self-interest and to be successful a politician has to uh, reach out to various constituencies depending on their own interest, only a small core are ideologically bound and that means that at the local level um, a, a platoon commander for example has to be closely attuned to what particularly resonates with that audience in order to get that particular little tranche of the audience on board to add up something and so political uh, awareness permeates down to the tactical level. Now the, the more interesting conceptual point can, more interesting, interesting conceptual aspect concerns civil military relations, because in the classic Hunting, Huntingtonian model, I'm thinking of the soldier and the state, for example, which was written in 1957 um, you have a clear distinction between uh, policymakers who make policy and the military who execute policy and neither should trespass on the other. And I think that made sense in the context of 1957, just after the Cold War when uh, the the conventional account was that MacArthur got too close to the nuclear button. But that, I think, needs to be evolved. Clearly there's a constitutional argument that the military shouldn't go nowhere near politics, party politics, quite right. But to be effective in a uh, circumstance in which policy extends right down to tactical level you have to listen to your tactical commanders on policy just as much as your high commanders so um, that again is now goes to an election where you have to be highly sensitive to how um, different constituencies are feeling at the local level and adjust your narrative accordingly and that really is interesting in terms of the way in which we have to evolve our civil military relations both ways so I think the military for one should, be, should encourage politicians, who are themselves the experts in, in politics, to uh, in, be invested personally in how to configure a narrative, and the other way around as well, politicians should allow the military to give advice on um, not just military matters, but policy matters, and that would allow for a much more fluent um, strategic dialogue, and hopefully avoid the, the, the more lethargic strategic narratives that we've seen over the last ten years.
2: You know, I was just thinking about you know how, what would that what would operationalizing that mean? You know, so you're sitting at ISAF headquarters, right? And you, you know you're responsible for operations across all of Afghanistan, um, but you know that the British Prime Minister is going to be deeply concerned with what happens in Helmand, and and not what happens in Kandahar per se. And so you know you know. You, you, you see what I'm saying like it's um it's it's going to be difficult for somebody in a unified a relatively unified chain of command to to reconcile that that sort of national level imperative to basically bypass Kabul and go straight to the provincial level um and that creates a lot of friction because you know why why is the British prime minister you know articulating um or, or you know having this much influence in this this key theater and, 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 and why isn't they, why aren't they consulting with us why why isn't this being brought into the chain of command blah blah blah, blah. um. So I, but but I, but I take your point. So what I think that means is we need to make sure that our senior commanders are very well attuned to the fact that this is going to be the nature of of of, of how civil relations work in in these contexts.
1: Yeah,
0: Emil, do you have a response to that?
1: Yes, um, I, I don't want to make it sound like this is easy. If it were easy, um, we'd be doing it, and clearly it's not. My point is this, um, it's a mindset. It, it's a mindset that I see um, as a move away from a position where, uh, say a junior officer was speaking to a, um, a politician um, who comes down for a briefing, the politician might ask his opinion on what's the local military s- situation? But the politician traditionally is not going to say, what's your view on the UK's policy on counter-narcotics? Now, what I'm saying is actually you should listen to the junior commander on policy matters. Um, And by the reverse token, the uh, officer shouldn't talk about, oh, it's these politicians interfering in military business. What we do is profoundly political, and these guys, i.e. politicians, are the experts in handling... Uh, narratives and audiences and we should listen to them and encourage them to be as close to the political pulse of the conflict as possible. So um, yes, I'm not holding myself out as having the answer, but um, in terms of civil military relations, the way I think um, they should go to respond to contemporary armed conflict and the politicization of the tactical level is towards a mindset which is more um, um, is more osmosis between the military and, and, the, and the political.
0: Great. Uh, well, thank you both. Uh, my log of seems to have run out, uh, so I may have to track down some more. But uh, any any closing thoughts? Anything else you guys wanted to mention that we didn't that we didn't get to touch on, Kathleen?
2: Um, I guess I would just leave with the final point that you know what's what's. You know, obviously, I'm doing my my, di- my dissertation on coalitions, um, but I really think that there's a number of questions that need to be deeply explored, because. Doing, you know, fighting a war is hard enough, right? And and the coalitions that we've been constructing and, and managing, the, and the way we've been doing so, is adding such an extraordinary level of complexity on top of an already challenging mission. And it doesn't seem to mean like that's going to go away. That this is probably going to be what we're going to be facing in the future, if past conflicts and, and contemporary conflicts, you know, if the lessons uh, still apply and the trajectory holds. So, again, I, I you know, I just think it's really important to start you know, learning those lessons and and and, and ensuring that our military commanders and, and strategists and, and politicians start understanding what this means to be operating through coalitions in the future Good
1: point, Neil? Um My closing comments would just be to contextualise what I've been saying throughout the discussion um, and be clear that I don't think war has gone away there is still such thing as war now um, if you uh take what I'm saying in terms of a spectrum so you have war at one end and armed politics at the other and this is more of a tool of analysis to understand and plan operations and if, you, if I could summarize what I'd like to see happening in terms of future operations it would be before we go into an operation for the person in charge of that planning operate, planning to ask themselves to what extent can the political aims that I've been told to achieve be achieved by defeating an enemy
0: great point uh well thank you both again uh everybody go pick up Emil's book war from the ground up and and uh and uh, it's fascinating reading it's, it's it is it is very good and uh we will see you for the next podcast